A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, you're listening to Stories of Our Times. I'm John Pienaar at Times Radio, bringing you something a bit different today. This weekend, the Sunday Times turns 200 years old. Two centuries of scoops and top-flight journalism debated at breakfast tables across Britain. To mark the occasion, I've been speaking to the editors, Emma Tucker, who's edited the paper since 2020, and John Witherow, the former Sunday Times editor, who's just finished nine years at the helm of the Times. We spoke in front of an audience at the Cheltenham Literature Festival on Sunday. It was a packed discussion covering the news industry, Emma and John's favourite stories, war reporting, and a little bit about young Boris Johnson's rather brief stint as the Times reporter in Brussels. I started by asking Emma Tucker about the story she's most proud of. Obviously, I took, I took over in, the, in January 2020, not knowing that five weeks into my... No, it was the end of January 2020. Within about five weeks, the pandemic had struck. The, the entire office that I had barely got to know had disappeared. <laughs> and I remember um, thinking at a certain point, it all seemed rather shambolic behind the scenes with you know, how the government was responding to the pandemic. And rather than asking our lobby team, the political team, to look at what was going on, I put our insight team, I said, you, you know, you don't have a relationship with the government and the ministers, why don't you find out what's going on? And they did this fantastic piece of reportage about the sort of chaos behind the scenes and, and Boris Johnson's failure to really focus on this massive crisis. Not turning up to Cobra not meetings. Not turning up to Cobra it? meetings yeah. and, you know, really not taking it seriously. So I read this piece when it came in, it was, as everything that insight our investigations team files, extremely long, yeah. and I read it and I thought, well, that's an interesting, good piece of reporting here, that, that'll, you know, w- w- it's worth publishing, and I showed it to a colleague and he was like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is a very good piece of reporting, we published it, and the next day, all hell broke loose, and I felt like that was the moment when I worked out quite what the reach and impact of the Sunday Times was, and uh, it was quite a shock, I was getting incoming from all over the place, because you know, that's what we're there for, yeah. to, to shine, well, to sort of expose what's going on, to let people know what decisions right. are being made on their behalf. The government didn't like it. They sent an absolutely stinking rebuttal to uh, what we'd written. Yeah. I was going, I, was, I've, I looked up my text from Matt Hancock. Are you going to read it to us? I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> <laughs> because now, at the time, I got, I thought, I've got a government minister texting me saying, shoddy, error-strewn stuff, Emma. We'll obviously need to rebut before next weekend. Let's talk in the week. And I was sort of like, oh, God, you know. You know. <laughs> and, uh, and very much sort of taken aback by it. 
But what I learned from that experience was you have to hold your nerve. You have to have faith in what your reporters have done. If it's made it into the paper, it's been through all sorts of hoops and hurdles, including going through our very, very strict lawyers. You stick to your guns, you will get grief. We always do. We get loads of flack and grief. The lawyers will be on to us. They'll try and scare you into not doing something. And then now, three years later, the official version of what happened at the outbreak of the pandemic reads almost entirely like our insight investigation. Yeah. So it's a lesson in holding your nerve. Yeah, well, uh, people will have, will have noticed or made a mental note of the fact that Emma, after, despite that text, uh, Matt Hancock is gone and you are still here. <laughs> so, <laughs> It, 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 you, will get, you will get a lot of... Oh, well. John, I mean, over a, a longer period in the editor's chair, 27 years altogether on both titles? Yeah, both titles, yeah. I mean, getting incoming from government ministers, cabinet ministers, the prime minister must feel like a walk in the park. I mean, I've had Boris Johnson on the phone ranting. Um, and you hear Carrie in the background, tell him to apologise, tell him to apologise. <laughs> tell tell, tell <laughs> them the dog story. You yeah, have this to was tell about the dog story. We wrote a trivial story that he was going to get rid of that wretched dog he's got. And, and okay. for some reason, they went nuts. And he rang me about three times demanding an apology <laughs> and a correction. It was a page three story or something. It was a light story. And, and I said, well, no, we, we've heard it from four sources. I think it was Cummings. Dominic Cummings, actually, was the main source, and, uh, who, who hated the dog. <laughs> and, and so, I, Boris, we're not going to apologize. And by the way, why don't you apologize for some of that crap you wrote out of Brussels? Yeah, <laughs> really, yeah. Right, OK, so, so party gates, a huge split in the party over, over Europe, finally an ignominious fall. And the thing that really upset Boris Johnson was a story about Dylan the dog. Okay, that's, that, that's, that's, that's really fascinating. It tells you something about his priorities, right? It, well, he, it, he was notoriously thin-skinned, you yeah. know. It was always the small things that, that upset him more than the kind of massive criticism of where he was running the government. Yeah. And as an ex-journalist, when you met him, he was always very suspicious. He'd mm. look at you, what are you, yeah. are you trying to trap me yeah. with some question? Because normally you were, that would be... Well, the... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not an unreasonable behaviour. Yeah. But most, most prime ministers do not behave like that. Now, John, look back, long memory of these things, but let's look at the Sunday Times, if you like. The stories, the exclusives that you were most proud of in that time. Well, when I came in, we, we of course, had a major government, which was exhausted. Blair was on the rise, and the Tories were beginning to fall apart, a bit like now. <laughs> And sleaze, there was sleaze there. And when we started exposing that, we'd heard MPs were taking money by rumour. And so we went undercover and asked 20 MPs to take cash for questions. And two Tory MPs took the money. And we, we wrote this story, it caused a huge furore. At the same time, Mohammed Al-Fayed was making similar allegations in The Guardian. And so this put a real focus on, on sleaze in Parliament. And then you had the Nolan Committee and the Nolan Report that led to a lot of reforms of Parliament. So newspapers played a really valuable role there. And then, of course, we did Cash for Honours, yeah. exposing the fact that parties were taking money uh, in exchange for honours. The Labour Party, the Labour government, was taking loans through Lord Levy, uh, which we exposed, which was a dishonest way of hiding the money. Uh, and, and people were suddenly getting peerages. Yeah. And the, the honours system is still very corrupt, yes. in my view. The way yeah. Johnson has doled oh, them out. God, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, maybe not for money in this case, but... It's, it's not a healthy system. Yeah, and, 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 and none of us have come up with a better one than the House of Lords moment. 
Let me talk about the business of editing a paper like the Sunday Times, and for that matter, the Times. How on earth do you do it? I mean, there is a, there's a, a view that if you are the captain of a vessel, of a ship, you need to know the job of everyone on the ship better than they know it, know that job themselves. If you're the editor of the Sunday Times or the Times, that simply cannot be possible. You cannot know more about, you know, tonight's fixture at the Emirates than your, your football writer. You cannot know more about, about what's going on in Myanmar than your Myanmar co- correspondent, but you yet have to be the boss with an overview over, over all of that. How do, you, how do you do that, Emma? So I think what you have to do is you have to set a direction, set an ethos, set very high standards, and appoint really, really good people. Yeah. And make sure that everybody has bought into your vision, that they know what your priorities are. And it does feel a bit like a miracle that, that this product comes out once a week and is as good as it is. But I think um, trying to keep across it all, you rely on your correspondence. You talk to people. Yeah. I mean, that's fundamentally all I do all week is talk yeah. to people. Both of you have spoken in the past about developing and building and changing the ethos of journalism, journalism generally, but through the the papers that you edit. It's called constructive journalism, and we're going to talk about that. But first, let's then start that bit of the conversation with this. Your papers are, both your papers are very strong and very successful in the most competitive environment they have ever faced. You are competing with every other title, obviously, but also everything on the internet. And one way that you mark yourself out is exclusive stories. Now, why don't you tell me a bit about exclusive stories? When you think about the idea of getting an exclusive and putting it in the paper, how do you think about it? Well, first of all, I think there's not much point to a Sunday newspaper if it's not getting exclusives. Um, And that's always been the tradition of Sunday papers in Britain. I think it's a peculiarly British thing, actually. You don't find Sunday newspapers in the US or on the continent breaking exclusives on a Sunday. So it's something that's very peculiar to to Britain and it's something that all the papers Mm. that come out on a Sunday aim to do. But as I say, unless you're breaking exclusives, really what is the point? Because by the time people come to us on a Sunday, they know the news, you know, they know what's happened the previous week. So they're looking, they're looking for two things. They're either looking for something completely original and distinctive, so a good exclusive story, or they're looking for pieces that explain the news. And that's actually where the constructive side comes in as well, because mm. you're explaining to people what's happened and why it's happened and putting it in context. One of the interesting things about, of course, exclusives last a nanosecond now because they're picked up on social media and they're out there. But digitally, readers really like them and they credit the paper that breaks the story. If everybody's got more or less the same stories, which is often the case, it doesn't make the Times and Sunday Times that interesting. But if you've got exclusives, Readers love them. They feel the paper's doing something. It's going that extra mile. And it's exposing wrongdoing, ideally, and changing things for the better. And that should yeah. be a key objective. Just, just for a moment, we've been talking for a few moments. I, I just want to hear a bit more about you, you, Emma, and you, and you John, and, and a bit about the making of, a, of an editor of The Times or The Sunday Times, because this is, to me, very interesting. If I go back a little bit into your beginnings in journalism, and also with you, Emma, but start with you, John. When you started your time as a journalist, you actually, you were a broadcaster. Yes. In, in, um, in, in Southwest Africa. Yeah, as um, it was then, Namibia. As, as a boy broadcaster, but on the World Service, broadcasted to very many, many people. I mean, and you were getting, I know, enormous heat from the apartheid regime in South Africa then, as, as a very young journalist. You went on to be a war correspondent. You covered the Iran-Iraq war. You were on the HMS Invincible in the Falklands, yeah. Falklands War. And when you look back on that, John, tell us 
how that early experience helped form you as an editor. What did you take away from that into the editor's chair? I was a sort of William Booth of war correspondents. <laughs> they didn't intend me to go to the Falklands. They wanted to send Robert Fisk, who was a sort of star foreign correspondent, but he couldn't make it. So I went. And it was incredibly illuminating. Um, it, it, what it tell, as an editor, it enables you to understand better what the correspondents are going through in yes. the field and the difficulties of communications often, of acquire, getting the information, getting it back. So it gives you some affinity with them, which yes. is very useful. And the Sunday Times over the years has had outstanding foreign correspondents. Yes. I mean, Marie Colvin, who tragically was killed in Syria a decade ago, um, we had David Blundy, who himself had left the paper but was killed in El Salvador. But going back, Nick Tomlin was killed in, in Israel, in yes. Golan Heights. It's, you know, it's outstanding reporters taking great risks. Yes. And that's, that's, the papers are very proud of its foreign coverage over the years. Yes, and, and, and Emma, you would say the same on, on this. I mean, it, it, when you look at what the Times and the Sunday Times writers are, are doing now, um, covering the war in, in, in Ukraine, People like Louis Callahan, Richard Parry, just uh, Askel, Christian Vicky out there on the front line. You know, you watch what they're doing. Just someone like me watches what they're doing. You think, oh my God, it's, it's kind of worrying. It's terrifying. The dangers you're exposed to. But for yeah. you guys, you are their editor. They are there, if you like, at your behest. Mm -hmm. That must feel I like know, a burden. The, the problem is, as war correspondents, they, they are very... They're, they're quite gung-ho. They want to be in the arena. That's yeah. their thing. And... You know, our job as editors is to assess the, the, the risk and the benefit. I mean, Ukraine's been an interesting one. At the beginning, I was incredibly anxious. When we didn't really know how the war was going yeah. to pan out, I got very anxious about sending Louise Callahan out there because it was, it was very unclear which way it was going to go. And then early on, there, was a, there were a couple of reporters who did get killed. And anyway, I think, I think um, God, fame, touch wood, <laughs> it, the, the, it's... We've got a better measure of the, of the lay of the land, and we have very strict security yes. um, procedures in place, and we, we do these big risk assessments, but it is always worrying. And, they, they all go through yeah. training, what's yeah. Yeah, I mean, all war correspondents. We had, of when John was editor and I was deputy editor at the Times, two of our, our well, a correspondent and a photographer got kidnapped by their fixer and literally put in the boot of a car, and we didn't, do you remember, their, their tracker just disappeared, and... And it was, a, it was an awful it, it 24 hours. It was one of the hours. most yeah. stressful days of my life, yeah. I think. That it, luckily, it only lasted a day that Anthony managed to escape. They shot him in the foot, yes. he escaped, and the photographer tackled mm. the kidnappers, and they got out. But it was an absolutely terrifying mm. day, because yeah. we knew they would have sold them on, and they would have ended up in those orange suits with knives at their throats. Yeah. We were that worried about it. These are extraordinary people, aren't they? I mean, extraordinary, extraordinary yeah. people. I mean, one of my old colleagues, um, his name's Alan Little at the BBC. I was on a hostile environment course where you're taught to negotiate minefields. I'm a political reporter. I'm, I'm never going to have to negotiate a, a minefield. But I asked, I asked this, this guy, why do you do it? He'd been kidnapped three times, held hostage three times. And his answer was, if I'm honest, it makes me feel alive. Yeah, they, mm. they, they definitely get slightly addicted to it. And that's, where, again, where, where our role is, to make sure that doesn't get yeah. too, too big. Responsibility of an editor. Now, you, Emma, different kind of background. You, you started off as a trainee reporter at the yes. FT. You did a bit of time in the House of Commons press gallery. I did, um, I did. I remember you there. It would have been the time we overlapped. I, we didn't have a drink together in the press bar, but you would have been at one end of the gallery <laughs> while I was at the other. <laughs> Um, taking it down for the Independent, but that was that was back then. And then you did six years in Brussels, 
um, yes. and a year in Berlin. Um, and then it was back, and you went into the features side of, yes. of journalism. But that, those early days, how did they shape you? Well, I think my experience in Brussels, you know, I wanted to be a glamorous foreign correspondent like John. I wanted to, to sort of go off and do it. And I kept applying for jobs in, you know, Africa, the Far East, South America, and I ended up in Brussels. But anyway, it was, it was still nevertheless a foreign posting. And what the good thing about it was I got a, a very, very deep grounding in the EU, <laughs> which was to serve me very well yes. later on when it came to Brexit. And we were having to deal with an awful lot of ill-informed information about the EU that was coming out of the British press. So yes. in that sense, it was very useful because it meant yeah. I had a more rounded picture. That is, that is interesting. I mean, and, and just, to, just a word more about you, as you were personally, but not just you, but you as a woman. You are not actually the, the first woman who's edited the Sunday Times. You're the second, aren't you? There was one in the, the end of the 19th yes. century. What was her name? She, she was called Rachel Beer. She was very glamorous. She wore very glamorous crinolines to work. And uh, she was also editor of The Observer. Right. So she, was, she had to, which strikes me as quite a good, good gig. So she would write different leaders for the two different papers in her horse-drawn carriage on the way to work. Yeah. I think I could learn a lot from Rachel Beer. <laughs> We'll have more from Emma Tucker and John Witherow in just a moment. That's after a message from a colleague. For four years, a civil war raged at one of the richest university colleges in Britain. She decided to tell me that Martin was in big trouble. Was it a plot to bring one man down? They're allowing the silence to prosecute you. Or was something else going on? It seemed to me merciless, pitiless. I'm Andrew Billen, a journalist at The Times. A new series, The Feud, begins this Thursday, here on Stories of Our Times. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. We started by talking about the competitive environment faced by your papers, which has been turbocharged, utterly transformed by the digital, digital age. 
And how do you deal with that? Well, one way you both have identified of dealing with that is what we're calling constructive journalism. It sounds like a piece of jargon, but what it means is journalism that actually contributes as well as starts fires and makes mischief. And I just want to hear both of you tell us a little bit about that part of the paper, because it's a big part of the paper's identity as you are and have moulded it. Start with you, John. Well, the feeling was that the papers in general are too negative, um, and people get turned off by that if all the stories are doom and gloom. So we wanted to turn that around and make things more constructive, that there was, there was good news out there, that the world is getting better, despite what you think is going on. You know, poverty is decreasing, people are getting wealthier, hunger is diminishing. Generally, the world is getting better. And the idea was you can try and convey what are positive stories so that people feel better about what they're reading and it's mm. a more accurate reflection of what's yeah. really happening. I mean, if you read some newspapers, you think we're going to hell in a handcart. It's not yes. true. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the issues that we all face as in the newspaper world is people are turning away from news. So every year, the Reuters Institute surveys readers' habits, and every year, the percentage of people who have completely switched off from news goes up, and it's particularly acute in Britain. And there's also an issue around trust. Trust in the media is also diminishing. So it's incumbent on us to one, maintain the trust, and number two, find a way of engaging people, because it's important that people do engage with the news. And one way of doing that is by making the news more constructive and treating a pretty news-literate audience with enormous amount of... Not, not making sure that you give them the full picture, as John said. I mean, a good example of that would be if you take something like knife crime, there's a way of writing about knife crime that always, always makes it sound like it's getting worse, usually if you compare one year with the previous year. But if you compare, say, one year with where you were 10 years ago, you see a very different picture that actually, over the last 10 years, knife crime isn't what it used to be. Or, you know, likewise with um, whether it's questions around poverty or, or um, social issues, usually if you put it in context, you, you'll get a very different picture than if you just take the latest set of figures. Yeah. I mean, that sounds very basic, but it's something that we've been guilty of not doing in the past. So people want the whole picture. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the papers are more interactive now than anyone could possibly have imagined mm. just a very, very short while ago. I mean, every article has a space for comments. The articles are full of comments from yep. readers. And I, I, I've no doubt you, you, you read them. Do they have any input, real input, an impact on the next story on that subject? I, I, what the reader thinks, does that affect not, not, not what, so what you're doing? Not so much the comments. I mean, the comments are always entertaining, and we know that readers appreciate them. Yeah. But what, we, what we've got that's more useful is we've got our, our own internal metrics, yeah. which tell us how many people read an article, yeah. but also how... How long critically they how long they read it for how, to what extent do they engage with the content we're not using the data to decide what we're going to write but we are using it to inform how we shape the journalism yes well, that, well that's my next, next question I mean um, you can see how many people are reading a particular article how, how long they're staying on the, on the, on the Sunday Times Times website without, without going off again how do you use that information I mean there is a, you, you know, at first glance it might be possible to, to imagine that, that just drives the journalism to the easiest sell each time, no, no, the story that's going to get the most hits. It's, it's completely the opposite of that. In fact, what they like is stories that are constructive, that are rounded, that put things in context, that have people in them. Case studies makes a big difference, and they also like expertise. 
this is particularly true on a Sunday when people have got more time. So that the pieces that do really well are analyses of the news, yes. whether it's uh, an expert writing about the blowing up of the bridge in, in Ukraine. I, I haven't even looked at the data, but I know already that that piece would be top yes. of our engagement statistics. Yes. Or whether it's a big political read that really goes into what actually happened behind the scenes at the Tory party conference. Yes. Those are the things that really engage people. And uh, it's absolutely the opposite of what you would call clickbait. Yes. I think the Sunday Times' deep political analyses are one of the crucial selling points, actually, yeah. particularly Shipman doing mm. them. They're really detailed. And yeah. He's got a whole week to really dig into. We yeah. try and do it a bit on Saturday, but our journalists are so caught up in daily events, they can't yeah. go into the same depth. And you've been doing some very good stories on the royals, haven't you? Because we have a, a very prickly relationship with the, with the royals, some Charles keeps his distance, but I don't. Occasionally, um, the Queen and, and Prince Philip would hold media receptions, um, and I remember going to one at Windsor Castle. They really didn't like them, but I think the aides said you really should try and meet the media. And so I, I was standing there, and, and um, the Duke of Edinburgh came up to me and said, "Who are you?" And I said, "I'm the editor of the Sunday Times." And he looked at me. And he said, "Can't be helped." Donald is here. I walked off. <laughs> And then at another one, at another one, I was standing with um, Geordie Gregg, who was then editor of the Mail, and Rachel Johnson at, at, at a reception, and they brought the Queen up, and uh, who's tiny, tiny, delightful figure, and immediately Geordie said, "Ma'am, my grandfather was silver stick, I think, to to your father," and the Queen said, "Really?" Uh, and then Rachel Johnson said, "My husband's." Uh, father was connected to yours. They were really trying to get in. The Queen clearly hated it. And then I said, am I the only one here with no royal connections? And she turned to me and gave me a beaming smile <laughs> and walked off. <laughs> but we, we did have a good relationship with Diana, um, who, was, who was very friendly and, and once came into the Sunday Times for a lunch. And I kept it very secret because we shared a building with the sun and the the news of the world as it then was. And she was great. And after lunch, I took her down to escort her out of the building. And she said, excuse me, I must just pop into the loo. Um, and she did. And when she came out, we went downstairs further, and there was a sun photographer taking pictures. And I thought, how did they know about this? Then I realized she'd gone into the loo and had phoned the sun to say, I'm in the building. If you want a picture, I'm downstairs. And the next day, the sun splashed Princess Di visits Sun HQ. <laughs> You've got to show they're very opportunistic. <laughs> now, guys, uh, uh, Emma uh, uh, and John, I, I want to take some of our audience's uh, questions to you now, if we can. You've been sending your questions in. I've got some of them in front of me now. Now, here's one from a couple of, a couple of our audience members. Same question, really, to both of you. What is your relationship to the owners of the paper, and what influence do they have on content? Emma. Well, first of all, it's a very good relationship because our proprietor is an extremely generous proprietor and all the kind of journalism I've been talking about today is very, very expensive. So unless you have a well-funded newsroom, you can't do the kind of journalism we're doing. He, uh, Rupert Murdoch doesn't influence what we're doing. He takes a keen interest. He's a news hound, um, but, you know, he doesn't... 
he'll, he'll, you know, we'll chat to him occasionally, but the, the, the idea that he's sort of bringing us, us up and dictating a line to us, number one, he can't because independence is guaranteed in our contracts. But number two, he's got a lot, of, a lot of titles. He'd have to be making a lot of phone calls uh, pretty much around the clock if he was seeking to influence every single one of them. Yes. I mean, John, I, 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 I saw a report, it was in the Press Gazette, when you announced that you were moving from the editor's chair to the, to the chair of the Times Papers. You addressed your staff, didn't you? And if the report was accurate, you paid your tribute to R.R. and R. And by that you meant Rupert Murdoch, uh, Robert Thompson, who's chief executive of News Corp, the parent company, in, in, in New York, and Rebecca, Rebecca Brooks, who's the chief executive of, of News UK. So you clearly were, were happy. And you can tell our questioner here, and, and all of us listening, those who, who are interested, which is probably quite a lot of people, you've never had any pressure. You've never had to fight your corner in, in any meaningful way. Because one might imagine it's part of the business of being an editor mm. to sometimes fight your corner. What he, what he, do, what he does business. is he... Look, generally... We've done our own thing always uh, on the Sunday Times and the Times. You know, he, he doesn't try and influence what parties we back or anything. Over, over Brexit, he would have liked the Times to have supported Brexit. And I said, really, it's not in our interests. Most of our readers are pro-Remain. Like 75 to 80% of the Times readers were pro-Remain. That would be against the readers, and it would not be in the interest of the title. It would damage it. And he said, okay, fine. And that's about as far as it went. So, I mean, he has been a brilliant proprietor, I've got to say. That's an interesting he, you know, answer. For 40 years, he's supported both titles. For a long time, the Times lost loads of money. Right. And he propped it up with Sunday Times and from other resources. Right. Okay. Here's another. Um, I'm going to connect two questions here. One is, how long do you give Liz Truss? And uh, <laughs> another is, is James A. To what extent do you, do you think you shape your readers' views? And to what extent do you reflect them? I'm going to, I'm going to translate it, that into a, into a third question. I mean, do you expect or imagine at some time the edit editorials of the, the Times and the Sunday Times may say, trust must go, and if and when that time comes, do you imagine it will have any bearing on whether trust goes or not? Only, only if the mood of the country and the party was... Uh, you'd have to be in accord with them. You can't go out on a limb foolishly, because it'll go, it'll go nowhere and it'll just show that, that you're weak. Uh, you've got to be with the mood. Uh, I think trust will survive. I can't see them getting another prime minister and they make yeah. them look absurd. Yeah. Um, she's got to fight through to the next election, I think. Yeah. Mm. Emma. I, mean, I, I think John will, will probably disagree with me on this, but I think the whole idea of newspaper editorials is very outdated. These days, I mean, you know, there's so much information out there. There's so much opinion out there. Why does it matter what the Times or the Sunday Times or the Sun, for that matter, say about whether a prime minister should stay or leave? So I sort of feel there was a time back, back in the day when Times editorials were really, really significant yes. and had huge impact. But these days, I think it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a vanity. Do you I'd think? quite like to abolish well, I think, them. I think people do read them. They're interested because they are reflecting. We're trying to reflect what readers think. And readers let us know underneath. They often. do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, well, two completely points of, points of view there. I mean, I, I, I will say this. that Back in the day, which is the only day before yesterday, when I was at the BBC, when it came to elections, there would come a point when the Sun newspaper, to take that example, would decide who they were going to support. And on that day, as sure as eggs is eggs, one of us would be sent down to the, the press room of the Sun and print the paper coming off the presses because it was seen as a big, big moment, evidence of a change in the... I in think the some a paper like The Sun or The Mail can influence readers because they make it a front page. They yeah. go, really, we don't do... Less that. so you. Yeah. yeah, we don't do that. We don't campaign for a 
politician or a party in that way. We will just write leaders that we think are sane, actually. Yeah. <laughs> sane but we, we also have to be honest about who's reading us as well. I mean, our big aim at the moment is to attract a new readership because we, we, you know, we've got the, the sort of print audience covered. We know they'll keep coming to us. But it, when it comes to influencing younger readers, we are up against, as discussed earlier, a, a whole new world. And so, you know, it's, we, can, we might influence the people who read us anyway, but, but as to whether or not we have any influence on anybody under the age of 45, I really don't, I doubt it. Yeah, there's a wonderful absence of megalomania in these, in these, in these answers. I mean, just, just from my experience, I think if the Times came out and said, trust Musk, or the Sunday Times, it would be a big, a big deal. I mean, you have more power, I suggest, than either you're aware of or you're prepared to admit having. I don't think it would be terribly controversial, would it? I mean, no one's going to really give you a hard time for suggesting that Liz Truss should go other than that it would be more disruption, but no. she's not exactly... Well, Downing Street wouldn't be very happy, <laughs> but, but, the, but there is a... When it comes to Downing Street, tell me a little bit about that relationship. I mean, there will be times, a few times in the course of the year, I don't know how many, when the Prime Minister, him or her, herself, will be on the phone to you. How do those conversations go? How do you handle that? Have you been shouted at? Do they charm you? Do you charm them back? Do you shout back? When you, when you go and see them, they often tell you something, they'll, they'll talk to you and the next day they'll go on TV and say exactly the same thing. So you think, well, what was the point of that? Mm. Um, but what you do discover is what's on their mind and yes. what priorities, and, that, and yes. that's valuable. Yes. So I remember going to see Gordon Brown once, um, uh, in the evening, and I, he offered me a glass of wine, which I took, he drank water. Um, and he had a little chart about the NHS, and he was drawing all lines over it, saying, we're going to do this and that. It, it was really micromanaging. And I thought, this is odd. You're the prime minister. You've got all these problems. Why are you worrying about one tiny aspect of the NHS? It just gave you an insight into how Gordon Brown's mind worked, which is helpful. Remind them about your conversations with Theresa May. Oh. <laughs> they weren't conversations. <laughs> you'd go and see Theresa May and you'd ask a question, she'd answer it very briefly and then there'd just be silence. So you'd think, well, here's another question and then there'd be a very short answer and they were the most difficult conversations I've ever had and everybody else who's dealt with her says that was the problem. She used to discuss just, her walking holidays. She couldn't communicate. Yeah, we ended up talking about her walking holidays, trying to have something to talk about. Here's one from Tom Cannon in the audience. He says... Uh, to both of you, how can we raise the quality of public debates in the UK through a better press? Which is a, a straightforward, simple and incredibly important question. Emma? Well, I think that's, it is a very important question, but you know, the press covers a multitude of outlets and we would definitely hope that the kind of journalism we're doing, where we're really trying to explain stories and uncover uh, things at the same time it is raising the debate yes. you know I think I'll tell you one thing that's really interesting is I think the press used to get away with a lot more than it does now partly because there was less scrutiny of us but with the internet we are challenged we're challenged all the time if we get things wrong or if people don't like it I mean it's, a, it, the, it's very true it's yeah. improved the quality it has. of the press yeah. Yeah. we're under total scrutiny all the time yes, yes. So it's, a, it's a positive yeah really is. and here is, is one uh, Emma and John for you. Why has there been, says our questioner, why has there been nearly no discussion of the effects of Brexit in the press? Is that question fair? Uh, it, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a totally fair question, but I don't think it's true. We did a whole spread just a few weeks ago saying we need to talk about Brexit. I think what happened was um, the pandemic and Ukraine 
very much sort of knocked... I think if, if the pandemic hadn't happened, there would have been every single news outlet would have been down at Dover writing the story about the, the, the tailbacks and all the rest of it. But interestingly, I was in Birmingham last week for the Tory party conference, there was much more chat around Brexit than I expected to hear. Because I think as the sort of, you know, dust lifts from the pandemic and from Ukraine, there's this an, an indisputable fact that we're coming out of it worse than other countries. And people are finally making a connection from some really quite unexpected sources, actually. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, generally the Brexiteers will say you've got to give it a decade to see what happens. Well, we've had a number of years yeah. now, and there's not enough positive things. And, and the challenge to trust is to try, or, or if Starmer takes over, is to try and get something positive out of it. Yeah. Otherwise, it'll be seen over a period of time as being far from us. If he was here, he would love that presumption that he's going to be the next prime minister, which is not quite a total presumption, I, rec I recognize, but I couldn't resist picking you up on it. Last question, Emma. Editor of the Sunday Times, I don't know where you go from there, unless it is... John's chair. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you wish to sit in John's chair before too long? Well, the, the chair he just vacated, Indeed. yeah, I'd love to, but it's just been filled by somebody else. So. Yeah, well, I, didn't, I didn't mean tomorrow. I mean, at some point. Yeah, some no, point. at some point, that would be fantastic. I'm sure Emma will go on some greater things even. even All right, I'm going to wrap it up. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming. I do hope you've enjoyed our conversation. I know I have. Please show your appreciation. John Witherow, Emma Tucker. The Times and the Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival continues through to this Sunday, the 16th of October. You can find out more at CheltenhamFestivals.com. I'm John Pienaar. Today's episode was edited by Oliver Adamson and James Shield. The executive producer of Stories of Our Times is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Tomorrow, Andrew Billen from The Times will be here with the first of a new mini-series, The Feud. Don't miss it. And don't forget, you can catch me on Times Radio Drive every Monday to Thursday from 5pm to 8pm. Listen on DAB, on your smart speaker, in the Times Radio app or at times.radio.com.